But we have a series of events that all focus on the realms of humility and the need for humility. The chapter begins with the disciples arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And this begins a sequence where in a series of events and messages and illustrations, Jesus Christ reinforces the, uh, the need for humility. And that starts with calling the child there in the first few verses, the uh, admonishment about stumbling blocks and how it's preferable to actually chop off a hand or a foot or pluck out an eye or something. It sounds gruesome and it sounds extreme, but it uses the language of extreme in order to illustrate the point that it is in fact preferable. And so we looked at those issues as well. Uh, here in these recent weeks, we've looked at the 90 and 9 from verses 12 through 14, and we are now in the midst of the uh, corporate discipline section, sometimes called church discipline section, in uh, verses 15 through uh, 20. So let's get right back to that. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together today. And Father, we are looking for your guidance and wisdom today. We are asking for your hand of blessing upon what we do. We're uh, most especially uh, bathing this evening in prayer and asking ahead of time, Father. We don't know who will be here, who might be here, who uh, needs the gospel and, and all the rest that's in your hands we do pray that any unbelievers present tonight would get a, a good dose of gospel as the testimony of Gary Williams is the testimony of salvation by grace. And I pray that, uh, that the message will come out loud and clear this evening. Father, for this morning, we thank you for the message in Matthew 18 and we ask for concentration. We ask that we might have diligence in our, uh, in our study and uh, provide for us the application for our daily walk. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. This aspect on corporate discipline is point E in the outline, stemming from verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins, early manuscripts have, or actually later manuscripts have, add the words against you inserted in there. It's a bit of a harmonization for what happens in verse 21. Uh, how often shall my brother sin against me? And because those words against me are in verse 21, a lot of the manuscripts added the words against you there in verse 15 as a scribal harmonization, pretty common in hand-copied manuscripts. In any event, if your brother sins, whether it's against you or not, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. This is perfectly consistent with what was revealed in Mosaic Law. As a matter of fact, this is a passage that has its primary application under the stewardship of Israel. Don't allow the term brother in verse 15 to distract you from that. And don't allow the English word church in verse 17 to distract you from that. Uh, your understanding of church as the bride of Christ, of a spirit-indwelt body, of neither Jew nor Gentile, with a permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit, your understanding of the English word church, and mine, not my understanding, is, uh, is, is tragically prejudiced by the age in which we live. 
the fact that you and I function in the dispensation of the church, and this has been our stewardship ever since the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. However, we understand that this passage was... uh, Uh, The words spoken were spoken by Christ to his disciples prior to the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. In fact, he's speaking in the fall of 32 A.D., uh, six or seven months prior to the cross. And so your brother in this context is not a church application, but it is the dispensation of Israel. And the assembly is not the body of Christ, the church. It is the congregation of Israel, that is the solemn assembly, in which Remember, the Lord cannot abide iniquity. That's why these sin issues have to be dealt with, and they have to be dealt with sooner rather than later. All right, so we have the progression, and you you go to him one-on-one, then two or three, and then tell it to the assembly. Although Matthew recorded these written words during the dispensation of the church, I don't care when you date the writing of Matthew, even if you're going to be a flaming liberal and say that Matthew wasn't written by the the tax-collecting apostle, uh, it doesn't matter. This this text was written after Pentecost 33 A.D. And so uh, this was written during our stewardship. However, the words were spoken prior to our stewardship. The words were spoken when Israel uh, was the steward of God's God's plan and program here on the earth. So they were spoken in 32 A.D., if you follow my chronological scheme. Matthew's written word was ecclesia, uh, but we have to ask ourselves, what was Jesus' spoken word? Was he speaking to his disciples in Greek? Did he use the word ecclesia? Was he uh, speaking to them in Hebrew? Did he use kahal? Was he speaking to them in Aramaic? And so was he referring to the uh, the kanishta? Was he referring to, in Aramaic, the kanishta, which is where in modern Hebrew we get the word kneset? Uh, what was his reference when he said, tell it to the assembly, tell it to the gathered, uh, called out ones. Brother and assembly were Mosaic Jewish terms before brother and church became ecclesiastical terms. We want to understand that. I think the biggest hang up is the fact that we're reading the gospel of Matthew and Matthew's in our New Testament. If these words were spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and he was speaking to Baruch or anybody else of his day, and he said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell it to the church, we would handle it perhaps easier than we're handling it here. But let's not confuse ourselves. Jesus Christ was a Old Testament prophet of the stewardship of Israel like Jeremiah. And his audience, the venue there, is identical to the venue of Jeremiah in terms of the stewardship of Israel. So if you look at Leviticus 19 and you recognize the term brother that's, that's employed there, all Jewish people were brothers in the sense that they were sons of, of Jacob, sons of Israel. They had their particular tribe, of course. And so uh, two Jewish people from the same tribe would be brothers. But even two Jewish people from different tribes are still brothers because they're sons of Israel, sons of Jacob. Likewise, the term assembly, Deuteronomy 31.10, there's so many other places. One that jumps out at me is Isaiah chapter 1, just because it's easy to find, and it's the first chapter of a very big book. And you turn, <coughs> you turn to Isaiah chapter 1, and he, te- he, call- he starts calling them names. He calls them Sodom. He calls them Gomorrah, speaking to Jerusalem and yet using some pretty harsh language. <coughs> and he says, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? 
Where exactly is it written that, uh, that you must trample my courts when you appear in my presence? He says, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. Now notice, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. So the idea to the Jewish people in the Old Testament that the congregation was significant, the assembly was significant, that I might be just a, a lowly carpenter or, or craftsman of some type, maybe I'm a cobbler, I make shoes or whatever I am, and I'm just a lowly Jewish guy from some insignificant tribe, all right, but I'm a brother with every other Jew, I am an heir to Israel, uh, I have a place in the assembly. And I can, I can assemble on Passover. I can assemble on Pentecost. I can assemble at the Feast of Booths. I can bring an offering to my priesthood. And they can accept that offering for me, on my behalf. They can take that offering within, and its blood can be sprinkled before the veil. And I can have fellowship with the priests and the Levites. And I can celebrate my covenant relationship with Jehovah by virtue of the covenant blessings he's established with my nation. All right. This is the, the glories of being a part of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, the idea of being cut off from that to a devout Jew, to somebody who really cared about it, was unthinkable. The idea of being excluded from the covenant worship, the, the idea of being excluded from observance of Passover or excluded from uh, assembling together in the presence of the Lord. Because when you assembled, when you went to Jerusalem and you gathered there, you were in the presence of the Shekinah glory, the glory that filled the temple. You were there. That was the place on this earth where God's glory was selected to abide. All right. So in any event, again, just reminding ourselves of this term brother and the term church don't read into it uh, later information that we know from the epistles, from the New Testament, from the church age dispensation. Likewise, a couple of other terms that are in this passage, um, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector when you are actually expelling him from the assembly. Uh, those are terms that are not ecclesiastical terms. Those are not pejoratives in our stewardship. They are, however, pejoratives to a Jewish mindset, to the Old Testament way of thinking in which the uh, Gentiles were not a part of the chosen race and tax collectors were the traitors to their race. All right. Secondly, the fundamental principle of corporate discipline is to win a brother. Your goal, your objective in any corporate discipline is to win that person, that brother or that sister. The goal is not to penalize them. Uh, corporate discipline, or what we call today church discipline in our stewardship, church discipline is not designed to be strictly punitive for the sake of punishing. Ultimately, that's not our role anyway. God the Father handles that. Jesus Christ handles that. But it is our role to edify, to build up, to minister to, and ultimately, if that brother is walking in darkness, to see them repent. To teach and to take a stand for doctrine in such a way that we are motivating that repentance. So the fundamental principle of corporate discipline is to win a brother with the least amount of involvement. And so that's why this is a concept that spans the dispensations. 
It was equally true in Israel's stewardship as it is equally true today. You have a corporate body of born-again saints who want to glorify the God who saved them. And the one that's walking in darkness is, is, is out of place. And he needs to be dealt with so he can be restored to the fellowship, so he can participate together in the, in the corporate function. And so that's why we exercise corporate discipline in our stewardship. We call it church discipline. It'll happen again in the millennium. It, it's, it's a feature that spans the stewardships, the dispensations. And remember, the goal is to win a brother. If you win him at step one, if he listens to the one-on-one rebuke, you don't go to step two or step three or step four. There's none of that ever happens. Right? And we're okay with that. <laughs> we should be very happy with that. To win a brother at step one is a glory. Unfortunately, I think folks get, uh, they get involved on a personal level. And they're not applying the principles of church discipline under sacrificial, unconditional integrity love. They're applying the principles of church discipline under uh, their own mental attitude, their own desire for vengeance or retribution, or they want to see, they really want to see God get somebody. And so they're delighted to be the tool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Lord, use me. I'm going to go chew that brother out for being as wicked as he is. Right? <laughs> no. We should not, and love doesn't do that. Love does not rejoice in wickedness, but rejoices with the truth. We should, we know that from 1 Corinthians 13. So remember, the goal is to win a brother with the least amount of involvement. If you can do it one-on-one, then you've done, you've done what you need to do. If it takes the two or three, well then, keep it to the minimum. If the two or three idea works, and you've, you've already shown up one-on-one, you rejected that, then you come back now with a, a buddy or, a, or two, so that combined you make three, you're still keeping it to a minimum, but that might be enough to wake him up. He realizes, oh man, now I've got the pastor on my doorstep and he's got a deacon with him. What's going on? Right? And you realize, you know what? Maybe the uh, Lord's trying to tell me something. Maybe I need to change my thinking here. Then if that doesn't work, you tell it to the, to the assembly, the entire body. And there's a reason why the entire body must know about it so that the entire body can be protected. So the entire body can be like-minded. Because if you keep it... Uh, kind of low-key and secret at that point, all you're doing is asking for divisions. You're asking for the, the, the segment of the church that doesn't know anything about it. You're asking for them to be ignorant and vulnerable to this guy's error if he was to come in and spread some of that. No, you want to protect them from that. And so we have the principle here. A one-on-one rebuke may be sufficient. That's what verse 15 is all about. Reading from Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. That is, according to you and him. Just you and him. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. You've accomplished your work assignment. You've glorified Jesus Christ. Two or three delegation may be sufficient. A two or three delegation may be sufficient. And, and there too, I recommend <laughs> you have some um, wisdom in who you select to go with you in the two or three. 
You want to select somebody with some maturity, somebody with some discretion. Um, because remember, they can still win at this stage. And so you want someone that is a bit circumspect who can keep uh, their cards close to their chest and keep... Uh, you all play cards, right? <laughs> I'm not in a Baptist church or anything. And they keep their cards close to their chest or they keep a close lip. They keep... They're discreet. All right. That's what that's all about when we're told that love bears all things. That means love keeps its mouth shut. We taught that in 1 Corinthians 13. So you have wisdom about who you take. You're not going to take the biggest blabbermouth in the church. <laughs> all right. A unified congregational stand may be required. A unified congregational stand may be required. It may be. That the two or three, uh, the person reacts badly and gets defensive and, and thinks, oh, well, you know, pastor's just ganging up on me. He picked out, handpicked these guys that are just, you know, whatever. Pastors get accused of having, uh, uh, you know, deacons are just a bunch of yes men. They go along with whatever you want kind of thing. Okay. Which is laughable. <laughs> you know. Come sit in on a deacon's meeting sometime and you, you realize that's not the way it works. And these men, I love these men. And they're far from just rubber stamping everything that goes on. They have their own ministry, their own priesthood, and, and God uses them. And I'm thankful for that. But a unified congregational stand. And, and it's got to be unified. See, when you, if, if, you have, if that breaks down and someone uh, you know, crosses the line, as it were, and uh, and starts fellowshipping and inviting him into your home and saying, well, okay, you know, it's all right. Or, uh, you know, the pastor was a bit extreme and that kind of thing. And, and all you're doing is you're feeding the problem, causing division and all the rest. Separation is the last resort. Now, when you look at verse 17, a lot of people miss this. Matthew 18, 17. A lot of people misses, miss the fact that there is an opportunity, this is the third and final opportunity, to listen. And that's the opportunity to listen to the congregation. I think sometimes people speed up to the uh, throw them out routine that as soon as the news is broken to the church at large, well, then that's it, he's gone. No. The, the releasing of the information in the, the very public... Um, the very public testimony of whatever it is, the very public uh, shame that actually has to be handled as a body itself becomes a listening opportunity, which we see in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that's the two or three, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, see, the church, the body, the corporate body is the final line in the sand. And the reason why it's the final line in the sand is because you've included everybody. There's nobody that's been omitted at this point. There's nowhere else you can take it at this point. Right? Recognizing, of course, that the assembly, in our stewardship, the assembly is all there is. There's no hierarchy above the assembly where, you know, we have to answer to a district uh, synod or bishop or some kind of hierarchy of denomination or whatever else. Tell it to the assembly. That is the maximum extent because that's the totality of everything. In the dispensation of Israel, of course, the assembly represented the entire nation of Israel in their 
uh, redeemed position and in their worship to Jehovah. So separation is the last resort. People want to jump to this one, right? You know, you find out about some brother's sin and it's immediate. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Let's, let's tell the pastor so we can throw him out of the church. Wait a minute. You're about four steps ahead. And we hope to never get to that step. Because we hope to never get to step three. Because we hope to never get to step two. If we can resolve this at step one, we're good. We've won a brother and the angels are rejoicing. And so that's the uh, the situation there. A long time ago, we did... Let me see if I can pull it up. We did... Anybody remember doing this? We did a study on church discipline. And we did it in our first Corinthians series. So in chapter 6 we did this? Chapter 7? Is that thing flickering behind me? Oh, that's terrible. Not good. We have had a long string of everything possible going wrong today. It happened Sunday morning too. and Okay. Anyway, we did a teaching on church discipline. There it is. Out of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Can you read that? <laughs> I know you can't read that. Um, and at the back of these notes, in fact, I think there's even some notes in the hallway still. There were at one time. The back page of uh, those notes... Were, was this flowchart. I don't know if you remember this or not. Um, but this flowchart here kind of walks you through the steps. And I don't know if I can... Here we go. Center this a little bit better. So step number one, your brother has sinned. Okay? And I love the way that we have no specificity in there. It doesn't say what the sin is. It doesn't say if it's a really, really bad sin. Okay? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't say if it's, if it's uh, uh, you know, something criminal where you could be in jail for it, right? It doesn't say you killed anybody. Why do we separate sins that are sins from sins that are crimes and sins, right? Sins are sins. So if your brother has sinned, the next step is show him his fault in private. And then you ask the question, does he listen? The vocabulary there, Akuo, 191, the Strong's Index. Does he listen? In other words, and we all know there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? If he... <laughs> I'm in trouble. I've got nothing but women here. All right. Well... I could say something about husbands, but I'm, I'm going to let that go. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Does he listen? Does he get the message? Does it come across and does he respond to it? If the answer is yes, the discipline is sufficient. You have won your brother. Uh, Matthew tells us you have won your brother. And Galatians 6 tells us you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You say, okay, I won my brother. Well, what does that mean? I've won him. Does that mean he's like a trophy? He sits on my dresser? 
He's a plaque. I hang him on my wall. What does it mean if I won my brother? Galatians 6.1 says, restore such a one. Restore such a one. And to me, restore means restore. Was he a Sunday school teacher? Restore such a one. Was he a deacon? Restore such a one. Was he a pastor? Oh, he can't be restored ever because we're going to punish him for the rest of his life. Stay tuned, by the way. We've got First and Second Timothy on Sunday mornings. There's an application there. Second Corinthians 2.6 has a passage that talks about the discipline is sufficient. And a problem when it becomes excessive. When you actually don't stop the discipline, you've got to stop the discipline when it accomplishes its purpose. The problem with the Corinthians, they threw the man of incest out of the church, and then when he repented and wanted to come back, they wouldn't have him. They're like, oh, no, 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 you're bad. You, you, you and your mom, and oh, that's just gross, and you can't come back. And Paul said, this man is humble, he's repentant, and you're going to pile it on after discipline's done what it's done? So discipline is sufficient, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Now, if he does not listen, then you go to the next step. Take one or two more with you. And when you add the one or two plus yourself, what do you have? You have the two or three. That's why you add one or two, because you're already there. You don't need to grab two or three, because then you end up with three or four. So just grab one or two plus yourself. You've got to go back a second time. Now he has an opportunity to listen. The question is then asked, does he refuse to listen? And it gives a, uh, an intensification. Instead of akuo, it, it switches to parakuo. It gives you a compound from akuo to parakuo. Does he refuse to listen? Again, you've got the opportunity to win your brother at that point, in which case it's over and done. And we should be celebrating that the plan works. Step three is tell it to the church, where again there is an opportunity to listen or an opportunity to refuse. And at each of these steps in the, way, in, the, in the flow chart, each of these steps in the process, it's about decisions and consequences. It's all about decisions and consequences. Because the, the, the course of action is entirely dependent on the decisions that that brother makes. So after the third opportunity to listen, then comes the disassociation. Not only is this consistent with Matthew 18, it's consistent with 1 Corinthians 5. That's where they had to remove that man of incest there in 1 Corinthians 5. It also comes up in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 and 14. See, So this is why we take the text in Matthew 18 that's for Israel, but we realize that there are church age applications because of 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 3. If we didn't have 1 Corinthians 5 and 2, Corinthians, and 2 Thessalonians 3 to correlate with Matthew 18, if the only thing we had was Matthew 18, I'd be highly reluctant to say that's a church-age text and we're going to apply it in Austin Bible Church. But because of the New Testament application, we realize that, yes, it spans dispensations and we can make application today. Then there's the disassociation. Now, is there a possibility of repentance after the disassociation what happens if he then changes his mind, repents, is humbled, whatever else? Because think about what's going to happen. Once he's gone, this is the hand of the Father on him at this point. 
He no longer has the human shepherd. You know, that softy, nice guy that he is. He's now directly under the omnipotent hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't have the protection of being... He's a sheep out there amongst the wolves. There is such a value to being in the flock. And, he, and that's gone. The hedge is lifted and he's out there. And after being chewed on long enough and eaten and devoured and, and all the rest of that, um, you know, a sheep may come to realize, you know what? This is not what God designed me for. And the, the son, the younger son in, uh, in Luke, real, you know, he woke up and realized that he was living with the pigs and, and, and they were eating better than he was. And he said, you know what? I need to go back to my father's house. And that's the picture here. So there is there are three opportunities to listen with human beings involved. But then once he's expelled, the fourth opportunity for repentance. Does he ever respond? Next year, the year after, ten years from now. And do we take him back? I would ask the question, and this is part of what we'll, we use in our uh, in training of these pastors and the young men that we're training. Is there ever a circumstance where you don't accept a person back? Only if they've not repented. If, if repentance is taking place and the desire is to walk in the light, show me a, a scriptural passage by which you have the authority to permanently expel somebody. And you can't do it. Not from this text, not from 1 Corinthians 5, not certainly not from 2 Corinthians, which says take them back. Or from Second Thessalonians, which again has different situation there, but still the same aspect of removing them from the assembly. All right. Well, that's those are the notes from uh, way back in the day. When did we teach chapter five? That was a long time ago. Two thousand and three, we did one, two, and three. Two thousand and four, we taught chapters four, five, and six. All right. Separation is the last resort. Point three. The like-mindedness of two or three. And the unity of mind throughout a congregation is a reflection of the divine attitude concerning the matter. And this is where verses 18 through 20 really connect the dots. Because what we do here on earth is a reflection of what has already been accomplished in the heavenly places. Like mindedness of two or three and the unity of mind throughout a congregation is a reflection of the divine attitude concerning the matter. Verses 18 through 20 and something we already taught already in Galilean ministry episode number 46. We taught about uh, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And he said, I will give you the keys of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. We taught this when we taught the, the words to Matthew in chapter 16. Sorry, the words to Peter in Matthew 16. That was Galilean ministry number 46, not that long ago. Here we see it again, though, in chapter 18. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. You've got to understand the order of that. The heavenly activity has preceded the earthly activity. Whatever you bind on earth, that is, in the outworking of time, shall already in the past have been bound. 
perfect tense to the Greek verb there, have been bound, meaning past completed action with present ongoing results, shall have been bound. It'd be like, that's why I say it's a reflection. If you're standing in front of a mirror and you wave your hand, what does the guy in the mirror do? Yeah, that's right. And does the, does the, the guy in the mirror or the lady in the mirror, I'm sorry, does the person in the mirror ever wave before you do? Hope not. <laughs> All right. Unless you've been drinking or something, you know. No, it's a reflection. What happens on earth is a reflection. And the reason why is that the Father is providing the attitudes, the heart attitudes. He's at work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. But it starts with the will. It starts with the will. And the Father gives us that will. All right. <laughs> do you remember? Somebody sent it to me. Did I send it to anybody? The, there was a, one of those goofy email things they send around with a video attached. And uh, it was a practical joke. They set up a public restroom with a lady standing in a mirror. And she's just standing in a mirror and doing her makeup and her lipstick and whatever else, right? Only, it wasn't a real restroom. Well, I guess it could have been a real restroom. But anyway, it was a uh, public area there. But it wasn't a mirror. It was a a pane of glass with an opposite room built on the other side of that glass to look like it was a mirror, right? And then this lady's twin sister was on the other side of the glass, dressed just like she was, twin sisters, dressed just like she was, and so the one lady on this side of the glass would do her lipstick and her twin sister on the other side of the glass was just mirroring everything. I mean, these girls were, were great at this, right? The problem is, though, a stranger walks in just off the street, walks into the bathroom there, stands at, there were two sinks there at the countertop, goes to the other sink next to the lady, starts washing their hands or whatever and looking in the mirror and she's not there, right? <laughs> she's not there. And she's looking and she's looking and then the reaction, they got five or six people over time on this thing. Absolutely hilarious. Fun thing to watch. I, I'm, I don't know if I'm twisted or anything. I just, I find that to be the, the funniest humor in the world, right? And it's clean, fun. There's nothing dirty about that kind of humor. It's just neat watching people really get kind of freaked out that their reflection was gone. You know, what would you do? All of a sudden, you have no reflection. All right. How did I get there? Oh, reflection. The like-mindedness is a reflection. So, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Same verb tenses in the second part of the verse. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Heavenly activity has preceded the earthly activity and is reflected in our thinking. For believers that are in tune with the mind of Christ, in tune with the plan of God, in tune with his plan for our daily operation. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask. Now, why do we have that agreement? Because we're like minded with Jesus Christ. That's right. The agreement is not for believer A to agree with believer B. Or for believer B to finally cave in and say, okay, fine, and agree with believer A. Right? 
like husbands and wives. There again, <laughs> she has the kind of movies she's fond of that usually have love and romance and whatever. All right. And I have the movies I love, which are swords and dragons and people dying. That's right. If there are swords and dragons and people dying, it's a great movie. So what do you do? You have agreement or like-mindedness and finally you say, okay, all right, it's your turn. And I'll go see this thing with love and romance and whatever else. Okay? And, and, and that's fine. That's the way it works. And if it's one-to-one, amazing. If it's two-to-one, three-to-one, five-to-one, whatever. I try to see a, a chick flick every four or five dragon movies. But the like-mindedness with Christ is not like that. It's not like one believer agreeing with another believer. It's believer A, like-minded with Jesus Christ. And believer B, like-minded with Jesus Christ. And because A is like-minded with Christ and B is like-minded with Christ, they have like-mindedness. 1 John chapter 1. Alright? So if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Why is he in their midst? What's he doing? Is he just hanging out, loitering? I am there in their midst. What is he doing there? Working. Providing the fellowship. Providing the guidance and the direction. Now, he's always there, of course. Omnipresence means he was there anyway. But beyond the omnipresence aspect of being there, he is there in a very particular and active way. He is there and he's engaged. That's the difference. See? I mean, there's a, just like there's a difference between hearing and listening, there's a difference between being there and actually being there. A person can be there, but they might as well not be. Because they're not engaged, they're not involved, they're not concerned, they're not active, they're not interacting. I mean, their, their, their body might be there, they might be occupying space and breathing oxygen, but they're not engaged in the, in the activity, they're not really there. So when he says, there I am in their midst, it's not a denial of omnipresence under other circumstances. What it means is that, of course he's there, but under these circumstances, in this situation he is truly there actively engaged working participating and uh, ministering through the like-mindedness that he supplies so the like-mindedness of two or three that's his work it's a reflection of his attitude that's why he's there working so fervently now we build on this with the 70 and the 77 70 times 7 or 77 i think it's 77 rather than 70 times 7 but either way it's an idiom that's designed to express an uncountable number meaning don't count all right like the 90 and 9 it's not 90 times 9 it's 90 and 9 i think same thing with 70 and 7 we're talking about 77 rather than 70 times 7 it doesn't matter whichever way you take it it is a linguistic puzzle it is a text puzzle I think it goes back to Genesis, and I think it's an idiom brought in from from Genesis there, but that's okay. The principle's still the same. Let's read it. Peter came and said to him, Lord, 
how often shall my brother sin against me? Now, this is right on the heels, of course, if your brother sins, if your brother sins against you, go through this process. And Peter wants to know, is there a, a statute of limitations on that? You know, is there a, is there a, a, a maximum number of times? How many times do we have to go through this? Okay, we, we went one-on-one, we restored him, but then he did it again. We went one-on-one, then we went two or three and restored him. Okay, fine. Then he did it a third time. And we went one-on-one, we went two or three, we went to the whole church and he listened. Okay, restored him back to fellowship again. Now he's doing it a fourth time. Can we just skip to step four? (laughs) Or can we just throw the whole thing out and say, well, you're done. Coupons are expired. You've used up your maximum number of times. So Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 or 70 times seven. In other words, multiply what you were thinking and then quit counting. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Okay, I'm sorry. We'll get to that here shortly. But just verses 21 and 22. Peter wants to know seven times. And Jesus said, no, not seven, 70 times seven, 70 times seven. In response to the teaching about corporate discipline, Peter wanted to know how far the forgiveness should extend. How far does forgiveness extend? You know, the whole corporate discipline thing is great. But if you can limit how far it goes, well, then why even have it? It's like love your neighbor. If you can redefine who your neighbor is, then it doesn't really matter, does it? That's why the lawyer wanted to know, well, who's my neighbor? Because if I define my neighbor as basically me, (laughs) and I don't apply anybody else as my neighbor, well, then it gets a lot easier to apply, doesn't it? But as soon as I add a second person to the universe maybe my wife or somebody, as soon as I add a second person to that universe, now all of a sudden, love your neighbor becomes a little more difficult. If I add a third person, fourth person, a fifth person. Still, if I keep it to just simply my immediate family, it's relatively easy. Keep it to my church family. Now, the the good neighbor teaching course includes Samaritans. And uh, we have that coming up, so we'll deal with that. But... um, See, here's the thing. If you, if you try to redefine the definition, you can, you can erase the whole commandment. And so here's Peter saying, well, okay, but how many times do I have to do this? That This four-step church discipline thing. I hear you. I hear what you're saying there, Jesus, but how many times have we got to go through that? Seven? And he says no. Again, we relate the question in verse 21 to the question in, or to the statement in verse 15. The language, when you look at the Greek, the language is, is almost identical in terms of the, the sentence structure, the vocabulary that's used. 
and so forth, which is why I think that a lot of the manuscripts harmonized between those two verses. And I think why a lot of the manuscripts inserted the words against you in verse 15, because the language was so parallel with verse 21, where the, the words against me were really in there. I think it's, uh, it's significant. I don't think the words belong in verse 15, but they do belong in verse 21. That when God, when Jesus was giving that teaching, if your brother sins, it didn't even have to be against you. If your brother sins and you are the spiritual one who knows about it and has the, the ministry opportunity, sin doesn't have to be against you. All right. It might even be better if it's not against you. That way uh, you got a little bit more objectivity involved and the other person won't think that it's, you know, it's just you being throwing a guilt trip on them or something like that. But here Peter says, well, what if he sins against me? <laughs> you know, how do I how, do we have a limit on it? The rabbis used Amos chapter one and chapter two. There was a verse in Amos one, three and a similar phrase in Amos two, six. And they used those verses to teach a three times forgiveness pattern. They used those verses to justify a three strikes and you're out legislation. Peter probably felt that seven times forgiveness would be pretty righteous. He thought he was shooting along. Right? <laughs> because of what the rabbinical tradition was. We, we've studied in the past, we've studied the school of Hillel, the school of Shammai, the two dominant lines of rabbinic thinking. There were others as well, but those two schools were the most dominant. And uh, when you examine the Jewish traditions, the various um, uh, applications that they made from the from the uh, the Bible, they had commentaries in every book of the Bible. They had uh, traditions and applications. Let's look at Amos. But they used the language of Amos <laughs> to justify <coughs> their uh, their legalism. All right. Amos was famous, but no one can find his book. It's after Joel. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. If you get to Obadiah, you've gone too far. If you get to Obadiah, good for you. Most people haven't seen Obadiah for a while. Amos, chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is what the rabbis used. So this is what the Pharisees were using. This is what the... Uh, the, the legalists of their day were using. Remember, it's always the legalists that want to know what the rules are, where do we draw the line, and how do we hammer them when they cross the line. So Amos 1.3, and, and this is interesting because this has nothing to do with corporate discipline. It has nothing to do with a, a body of believers in love ministering to one another. This is actually an oracle directed against Gentiles. In any event, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and from him and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. 
So the people of Aram will go exiled to Kerr, says the Lord. All right. So there's your pattern. Again, we have it in verse 6. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. All right. You have it again in chapter 2 and verse 6. Uh, there's probably some more here. Yeah. In chapter 1, there's verse 9. There's verse 11. There's verse 13. Now, we have it here in patterns of 3 and 4. We have it elsewhere in patterns of 6 and 7. We have it some other places, I think, in patterns of 5 and 6. It doesn't matter what the numbers are. The numbers are really kind of irrelevant. The formula is X and X plus 1. Okay, whether it's three and four, like here, or whether it's six and seven, like in Proverbs, six things the Lord hates, yea, even seven that are an abomination to him. Okay, when you have this, that don't worry about the numbers. The numbers aren't the point. When you have the X and the X plus one construction, what's being highlighted is that final one. What's being highlighted is that X plus one, which means that this is where the straw has broken the camel's back. This is where that one, that final, that final plus one is what crossed the line. We have similar idioms in English, right? The straw that broke the camel's back. What does that mean? That, that a single straw can break a back? No, a single straw can't. But when you had one less, all, all that, you understand the idiom. Anyway, the, the, that plus one, that plus one means that God and his forbearance has had it. And that plus one is the one that finally, where the long-suffering of God gives way to the righteousness of God, and justice is, ex is exercised. Here in Amos, it just happens to be three and four. Elsewhere, it's a pattern of six and seven. Now, the rabbis used this as their justification to teach a three times forgiveness. That I can forgive my brother three times, but boy, as soon as that fourth one hits, that's it. I am never forgetting that man ever again as long as we live. Okay? A permanent writing off. What a horrible way to function. It is interesting, though, that the, the rabbis chose Amos, rather than Proverbs, chose the three and four pattern instead of the six and seven pattern, right? Couldn't they have done the six and seven pattern? Where, you know, the six things I hate, seven that are an abomination to me? And the rabbis could have said, ah, oh, let's do a six strikes in your out rule. And write off somebody at seven, right? No. If you're going to be a legalist, go ahead and be a legalist. Chop them off at the fourth time. Well, chop them off at the second time. If you're really going to be a legalist, come on, be fair. Anyway, Peter probably felt that seven times forgiveness would be a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. He was already told that. The Lord mentioned that in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, remember this? He says, um, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he goes on to talk about how it's not going to pass away and heaven and earth will pass away. The law won't. And then he says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we understand, of course, what that's about, that. A righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees means having a righteousness that's imputed by grace through faith. It means stop trying to earn your way to glory and accept the gift that was done for you on your behalf. 
receive the righteousness implanted. That's how your righteousness can exceed. It's not trying to out-legalist the legalist. That doesn't exceed the righteousness. I think it falls short of the righteousness. I think it, it lowers to their level and lower. And the idea that, oh, well, the Pharisees, they'll do a three times forgiveness and write you off at times four. And Peter says, hey, I'll do a six time forgiveness and write you off at step seven. Is that any better? Is that a righteousness that exceeds? No. If anything, it's more of a legalism that uh, takes more pride in, in uh, just being more long-suffering than the legalist in the pew next to you. It's, it's still just a relative scale, a relative standard. All right. Thirdly, the idiom that Jesus used comes from uh, Genesis 4. Let's look at that, and then we will cut you loose. Genesis chapter 4. He uses an idiom that's actually found in the Old Testament. It's a happy passage. Genesis chapter 4. Nothing like a little bit of murder and mayhem to dismiss our service with today and go have lunch. All right, remember Genesis 1 and 2 creation, Genesis 3, the fall, Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel. But it's not the only murder in Genesis chapter 4. We understand Cain murders Abel. He was of the evil one and he slew his brother under satanic motivation. He denies it, he lies about it, and then uh, he complains that his punishment's not fair. And uh, God in his grace doesn't change the punishment, still gives him the punishment but adds to the punishment a measure of mercy and a measure of grace and uh, provides for him a mark. And the mark is not for his uh, disgrace or shame. The mark is for his uh, protection. Cain said to the Lord in verse 13, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. All right, sevenfold. This is the principle. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. We don't know what the sign was. We don't know what the mark was. There's all kinds. There's no end to the racist speculation on that. Now I'm going to talk about it this morning. What I'm going to talk about, though, is what happens in these subsequent generations. Cain uh, went out from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And there is some uh, understanding there that this was behind Eden. In other words, the angel was at the front with the sword. And this might be, uh, you know, sneak in the back way kind of desire. But anyway, whatever that is, east of Eden. He had relations with his wife. She conceived, gave birth to Enoch. Not the Enoch that we like, the good Enoch, but this is a different Enoch. He built a city called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. I can't wait. I want to name, I want to build a city someday. Name it Bob. Unfortunately, I'm not a builder. Put a tool in my hand, I tend to break things. 
And so we go down. Enoch was born Irad. Irad became the father of Mahujael. Mahujael became the father of Methushael. Methushael became the father of Lamech. Not the Lamech you like, a different Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. So it doesn't take too long in the plan of, or in the fall of humanity, and already degenerate humanity is plunging into sexual sins and lust and polygamy and different things. Took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada. The name of the other was Zillah. And then here comes Jabal and all there. Why am I reading all this? Notice, verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. I got something to brag about. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. Now, did he kill two individuals or did he kill one that he's insulting by calling him a boy? If Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech, 77-fold. And this is the idiom. This is the language the Lord employs when Peter wants to know, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven? And he said, no, I say unto you, 77. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, 77-fold. Then when you track the ages of these patriarchs, the generations in which they live, and so forth, and you understand the different things, in any event, who did Lamech murder? Did he murder one, boy, one man or two? Did he murder a man and a boy? Or did he murder a man and called him a boy? All right. Want to know what the legend is? Want to know what the rabbis believe? Want to know what I believe? You don't care. Doesn't bother you any. I believe he killed Cain. I believe that he murdered his patriarch. He murdered Cain the federal head of his clan, in direct defiance of Jehovah, who promised sevenfold wrath, and murdered Cain anyway, and defiantly stood against the uh, Lord of Heaven, and uh, mocked the sevenfold wrath, and uh, demanded the seventy-sevenfold vengeance upon himself. So far as that goes, amen. That uh, has a whole other realm of teaching that goes with it that you can take from Genesis 4, you can take 5 and 10, these early chapters that deal with the lines of Seth, the lines of Cain, the, the, the different aspects of the Gentile stewardship, and you find patterns for today. You find the world system of Gentile paganism all the way back here. And it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating study, but beyond what we're going to tackle today. All right. So Peter wants to know, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven? Now, don't be defiant against Jehovah, the Lord God of Israel. Seventy-seven, which means don't even count. Don't even count. You won't live long enough to exhaust the grace and forgiveness of the Father. Think about it. Is there a limit to what he's forgiven you? Or was it all of your sins that were put on the cross? All right. So if there's, no, if there's no limit to what you were forgiven, why are you going to draw a limit to what you will forgive? The moment you say, oh, I'm going to draw the line, I'm not going to forgive after this point of time. Well, then go ahead and draw the line, but then admit that uh, you've got sins maybe yourself that aren't forgiven too. Are you going to limit that? Are you going to limit what Christ paid for on the cross? Well, if you're not going to limit that, then don't limit the other. Develop some forgiveness. Because you've been forgiven. When we come back next week, we'll expand on that because we have these two slaves, uh, the fellow who was forgiven but couldn't forgive. 
And that's just a picture of all of us, so we can stare at a mirror and read the verse and say, man, that's what it's about. Let's forgive one another. Father, we thank you for this day and for the truth of your word and the time you have blessed us and allowed us to spend in your word. We thank you for this opportunity. And again, we are lifting up this day services that we're anticipating this evening. We'd rather not have them, Father. We'd like to hear a trumpet before 730. But if if you leave us here in this world and, and we are here this evening to minister, I pray that the ministry would be effective and powerful. And I pray that any uh, lost and uh, dying individuals that may be present We'll hear a, uh, hear a solid gospel message, Father, as they come to honor uh, their friend, our, our dear brother Gary. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.